Amen, friends. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Good. I didn't grow up doing that, so I would have sat there with like a deer in the headlights. Praise the Lord. He is risen. He is risen indeed. There we go. Amen. Amen. We gather in the name of the risen King Jesus. And as we just sang in that song, his glorious cause, right, engages our hearts. Engages our hearts to cry to him, be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and let your glory be over all the earth. We look back at the cross and the resurrection from the advantage of hindsight, right? 2,000 years and more ago, we look back with great joy and with great assurance. But it wasn't always the case that God's people were looking back to the cross. There was much of history where God's people were looking forward to the cross with anticipation, waiting for the true king to come. The true king to exalt the glory of God above all creation. This morning, to help us think about and appreciate and engage with the significance of the cross and resurrection, we're going to rewind the clock more than 2,000 years, another 1,000 years back to King David and look at this king and his experience of, in some ways, death and resurrection to help us understand and appreciate what Christ has done. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 57? Psalm 57. Let's pray and ask God's help before we read the text. Father, I pray that you would use the words of David, this ancient Hebrew poem, to engage our hearts with the gospel, and then to engage our hearts in the mission of spreading the gospel, to work down deep into us, an appreciation of your steadfast love and faithfulness that enables us to then cry, be exalted, O God, whether we're in the darkness or whether we've come out into the dawn. So would you help us now as we read your word? Would you show us Christ through your word, we pray. Amen. Amen, friends. Psalm 57 says this. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. 
Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Friends, there's a movement in this psalm. If you notice, in three places, David cries out to God something specific. In verse 1, he says, be merciful to me. And then in verse 5 and verse 11, he says, be exalted, O God. There's a movement from this cry for mercy or this prayer for mercy to a prayer or a cry of praise. What would cause David's heart to move this way in the midst of some very, very horrifying circumstances? What turns David's prayer to praise? That's the question I want us to look at this psalm with. In order to see that, we need to think about the background of this psalm. You'll notice if you have an ESV, and I imagine in other translations, you have what's called a superscription before the psalm. A little little note telling you some context for the psalm. These were not necessarily originally composed with the psalm itself, but when the editor of the book of Psalms put them all together, he often gathered little tidbits of information. Where was this psalm written? What was, it, what was the circumstances of this poem? And here at the beginning, he writes to the choir master, according to do not destroy a mictam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. The part I want to focus on is that last little bit, when he fled from Saul in the cave. David is writing this psalm with respect to his experience fleeing from Saul and hiding in a cave. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, particularly the book of 1 Samuel, you know that God anointed Saul over Israel as king at their request. And yet King Saul proved to be a wicked king who rejected God by disobeying him. And so God was replacing King Saul with a king that he said is going to be a man after his own heart. So he sends the prophet Samuel to anoint this shepherd boy, David, as king over Israel. As you can imagine, King Saul doesn't really like that much. He doesn't like the idea of being replaced. And so he decides to hunt down David, to bring an army and to capture him and kill him so that he can remain king over Israel. So we have in these circumstances a wicked king, Saul, pursuing this anointed king, David, to put him to death. As he's running around and pursuing him over the land of Judea, David finds this cave to hide in. 1 Samuel 22, 1 says that David takes refuge in the cave of Adullam, hiding from this deadly peril that he faces at the hands of Saul. And so as David hides in the darkness of this cave, being pursued by someone who wants to put him to death, he cries out to God. His soul is sorrowful and weighed down, and so he prays. He prays in verse 1, Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Just picture David sitting in that cave, taking refuge and waiting for the armies of Saul to pass by. To not notice him. Not knowing whether at any moment those armies could come into the caves and flood them and find him and kill him. But he says, in you, 
in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. David is in deadly peril, but he takes refuge, not in the refuge of the cave itself only, but in the true refuge of his God. He hides in the shadow of his wings, knowing that that is truly what determines whether he lives or dies. What keeps him safe from the danger he faces. So he prays to God. Notice how he prays. He prays with confidence that God will fulfill his purpose. Verse 2. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. What was God's purpose for King David? He had been anointed as the future king over Israel. So God's purpose was to make him king over Israel, right? David trusted in the word of the Lord rather than his circumstances as he hid in that cave from Saul who was mightier and had an army with him and could find him and kill him and stop God's purpose. But David said, no, I know that you have told me your purpose for me is to be king over Israel. And so I cry out to God most high, To God who fulfills his purpose for me. David prays with confidence because he trusts that God is going to fulfill his purpose. That's not the only thing though that fills David's heart with confidence. Look what he says in verse 3. He says about this God. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. You see David's confidence in God came from knowing the character of God. When David says he will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness, those words all through the Old Testament are shorthand for who God is. Right? When God reveals himself to Moses, he says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the essence of who God is towards his people, his covenant love and faithfulness towards his people, his willingness to keep his promises, his willingness to send out and save, his willingness to destroy the enemies of his people. And so David prays with confidence, knowing he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will act to save me and God will triumph over these enemies, even King Saul, even as he pursues him, David had this kind of confidence. And guess what David does as a result of this confidence? Look in verse four. My soul is in the midst of lions, not literal lions, right? But surrounded by the armies of Saul, unable to challenge them, knowing that they pose a deadly peril to him. What does he do? I lie down. When he says, I lie down amid fiery beasts, he's using poetic language again to describe these people who are pursuing him. These children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and whose tongues are sharp swords. They pose a threat to him, both physical, emotional, spiritual. They are threatening David and yet he lies down in confidence, in peace, even in the midst of these lions because he trusts in God. He knows his character. He knows his steadfast love and faithfulness. And so he says, I can lie down. And then he exalts God. Right? Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. From the darkness of the cave, David looks up to God and says, be exalted. Can you imagine him drifting off to sleep 
surrounded by the armies of Saul, saying, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's a cry for deliverance, right? Be exalted through delivering me. But it's also an expression of confidence in the character and purposes of God, knowing that God will exalt himself. All throughout the Old Testament, that's the testimony that God is making known his name. And he will do it through David. And so David lies down in the midst of lions, waiting for God to deliver. And then he does. Verse 6. Look at that. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. Notice it's now moved into the past tense, right? This is what happened. They set a net. For my steps, my soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. God rescued David by causing wickedness to fall into its own trap, to defeat itself. God rescued David by making evil defeat evil. See, what happened, we read about later in the book of Samuel, is that as David was hiding in these caves, surrounded by the armies of Saul, being forced into a trap, in essence. King Saul wandered into one of these caves to rest a little bit. And David's men woke him up and said, hey, there's, there's Saul. He's over here. God has delivered him into your hand. And David snuck up on him and cut a little corner off of his robe. And then decided that God did not call him to kill the Lord's king. That God himself would do it if that was his will. And so he let Saul escape, and then David came out into the light and declared, Look, Saul, you ha- I had you in my hands, and yet I, deliver- I did not kill you. I delivered you. And Saul says, Surely you're going to be king over Israel. He comes to this conclusion that David will be king and leaves him. Wickedness had fallen into its own trap. They dug a pit in my way, David says, but they have fallen into it themselves. God delivered David, miraculously, through evil defeating evil. And so, David sings, right? That's where he goes in verse 7. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you. Among the nations. David sings first of all to himself. When he says awake my glory. He's talking about my very being or essence. Awake myself. Rouse yourself up. Look at the deliverance that God has granted. Look what God himself has done. In bringing these wicked men into their own trap. Awake myself. And then he cries out to all creation. To instruments like the harp and the lyre. To the dawn itself. He can't wait to praise God for what he has done. I will awake the dawn, he says. And then he sings to the nations. He sings to the nations to give thanks to the Lord and to sing his praises. And through David's writing, who wrote most of the Psalter, the rest of the nations join in in singing the praises of Yahweh. We have this psalm because David recorded this experience for us so that we could join in in praising God for his miraculous deliverance. David sings now because he knows the character of God, not just theoretically, but experientially. He's experienced the saving, steadfast love and faithfulness of God, right? In verse 10, he says, 
that he will sing to the nations for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. As he comes out of the cave into the dawn of a new morning, he looks and he sees the clouds and he reflects and he says, you know what, God, your steadfast love, your steadfast love is great to the heavens. It's more than the heavens can contain. And your faithfulness is to the clouds. I can't reach it. I can't reach the edge of it and say, I've moved beyond your steadfast love and faithfulness. But I know that your steadfast love and faithfulness covers me through and through. David exalts in the name of the Lord. He says, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. With the dawn of this new day, David has a new lease on life. And he exalts God. God has sent his steadfast love and faithfulness out to rescue him. The storm of destruction has passed by and the sky is clear. So what turned David's prayer into praise? What do we see in this psalm? We see that God has a purpose for David. He reflects on that purpose. God has made me king over Israel. And that David has confidence that God will fulfill his purpose by sending out this steadfast love and this faithfulness. And therefore, whether it's dark or the dawn, David can cry out, be exalted, O God. Let your glory be over the earth. For centuries after David, God's people had Psalm 57 written down to show them the saving, steadfast love that he shows his people in accordance with his purposes. They had this psalm, and they had David's story, and it gave them confidence, whether they were experiencing the darkness, the storms of destruction, of being surrounded by enemies. And if you know the history of Israel, you know they went through a lot of times like that. Whether they were in the darkness, or whether they were experiencing the dawn of deliverance, they were able to exalt the name of the Lord God They were able to cry, let your glory be over all the earth. And yet, David was not the deliverance that they were looking for. David was not the end of the story. God's people were looking for a greater hope, a greater rescue. Because David himself was rescued and put as king over Israel. And Israel still rebelled, right? And David still sinned. And God's people still turned away from him and went away into exile. And experienced tremendous pain and suffering as a result of their sin. And they had trouble crying, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They tended to say, let my glory be over all the earth. And so they looked to someone greater than David. They looked for deliverance that David anticipated. See, this poem is not just about King David. What we see in the scripture is that King David is a type of a king to come. He's an anointed king over Israel, but he's not the king that God's people are waiting for. The one that God's people are waiting for is the one we look back on now on Resurrection Sunday. The true king of kings and Lord of lords, the son of David, Jesus Christ himself. So I want to look through this psalm. In light of Jesus. Because as I looked at this psalm. And as I thought about the story of David. And how David himself is supposed to point us. To the greater David. King Jesus. 
I think this psalm can help capture for us some of what Christ experienced on our behalf. And some of how that affects us now. You see, there was another king that was anointed and pursued by murderous enemies. And this king seeks refuge and prays in this way. And that's our King Jesus, isn't it? A thousand years after David, the anointed King Jesus was pursued by murderous enemies who rejected his rule. We read about them in the Gospels. Starting to plan on how they can capture and secretly kill King Jesus. Trying to figure out how they can get away with it without upsetting the crowds too much. They spend time plotting and scheming, even to his face. And towards the end of his life, as he sees these plotting and scheming coming to fruition, he takes refuge. We read about in Matthew 26, Jesus going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus doesn't take refuge in a cave, but he takes refuge in a garden in the darkness of night. And he prays. I'm going to read a little bit of Psalm, or excuse me, a little bit of Matthew 26, but I want to encourage you just stay in Psalm 57. We're going to see these things as we read through this story. Listen to what Jesus prays in the garden. Matthew 26, 36. Matthew writes this. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. As Jesus prays three times in the garden, he asks the father, Let this cup pass from me. Jesus prays because his soul is sorrowful. Right? His soul is weary and weak. And he is aware that his death is very near. And that he has very little sense of hope, humanly speaking. Can you picture him praying what David prayed? Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Asking his father for mercy and yet confessing, in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Jesus praying in the garden says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. He looks to his Father and says, in you I take refuge. You are the true place for refuge. And he prays with confidence that the Father will fulfill his purpose. Right, Just like David crying out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Psalm 57, verse 2. Jesus cries out to the Father who fulfills his purpose. He says, if this cup, he he says uh, in verse 42, 
If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He's confident that God will fulfill his purpose. And he's confident that his purpose will be best. Why? Because he knows the very character of God, right? Jesus himself is God of gods. He himself is truly God and therefore reveals perfectly the character of God. So instead of like David, having confidence, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Jesus himself cries out to God from the refuge of the garden as the steadfast love and faithfulness of God that has been sent out. See, Jesus was sent from heaven to save, right? He's not praying and saying, I know God will send from heaven and save me. He's praying in light of, I know God has sent me from heaven to save them. He's praying not in light of God who will put to shame his enemies immediately, but he's praying knowing that he will endure shame from God's enemies very shortly to triumph over the true enemy, the enemy of sin and death. Jesus fulfills God's purposes to send out his steadfast love, and so he exalts the Father, right? We see in John 12, John's version of this prayer, where Jesus says this, John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus cries out, Father, glorify your name, just like David did. In the midst of darkness, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. From the darkness of the shadow of death, Jesus cries this out. He knows that God's purpose for him is to crown him the true king and to save his people, but that it's happening not by God rescuing him from the storms of destruction, but from God actually putting him in the path of the storm of destruction, letting the storms of destruction have their full vent of fury on Christ himself. That's God's purpose for him, and he's confident that God will fulfill it. And so he says, glorify your name, Father. And God says, I have and will do it again. We see in here, as we compare these two, that David laid down his head in the midst of lions, confident that God would deliver him from death. But Jesus Christ himself laid down his life to men who had teeth like spears and arrows and whose tongues were sharp swords. He laid down his life so that his enemies could be saved. Matthew continues the story of Jesus as he recounts his death. Matthew 27, 45 to 50. Now the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. Until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up. 
his spirit. We know the story and what happens after as Joseph of Arimathea comes and asks for Jesus' body to be given to him and then puts it in his grave to rest there until they can come and prepare the body rightly for burial. Little did they know that deliverance is coming, right? Just as David was miraculously delivered, so Christ was miraculously delivered. Listen again to what David says in Psalm 57, 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Friends, the same thing happened to Jesus at the cross. They set a trap for him. Satan set a trap for him. Convincing and deceiving the leaders of Israel that he should be murdered. And Satan did a little victory dance, probably a big one, when Jesus died. And yet, this was the very trap that Satan himself fell into. See, at the cross, evil defeated itself. At the cross, wickedness fell into its own trap. The cross is actually the means of victory. Not just for Christ, but for his people. Listen to what Paul writes in Colossians. He says this. Colossians 2.8 See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How did this happen? This way. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith, in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, having no hope, dead in sin, as Paul writes in Ephesians. You who were dead this way, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How did God shame those who would trample on Christ? He triumphed over them, putting them to shame by nailing our record of debt. What we owe God because of our sin, nailing that to the cross and disarming sin, disarming Satan at the cross. At the cross, wickedness fell into its own trap. At the cross, we have victory. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus sings. His resurrection awakens the dawn of a new creation. He sings, I will awaken the dawn. He sings like Paul does in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty five. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? He sings at this awakening of a new creation. And then he sends his people out singing. He sends his people out singing. Listen to where Luke ends his gospel. As Jesus 
is raised and appears to his people. This is what happens. Luke 24, 36 to 53. As they were talking about these things that Jesus was raised and they were wondering at this. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Everything written about me, even Psalm 57, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And were continually in the temple praising God. Friends, as a result of Jesus' resurrection, as a result of his triumph over death at the cross, his people are sent out singing. Just like David says in Psalm 57, 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. The disciples are sent out, right? In the Great Commission, to make Jesus' name known among the nations, to baptize and to teach them to obey all that he had commanded. They are sent out singing to the nations, and the result of all of this is that Jesus himself is exalted. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 2. He says this, After Christ died, Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. In other words, the result of all of this for Christ is be exalted, O God. Let your glory be over all the earth. Jesus Christ himself is accomplishing that. David was delivered from death to fulfill God's purpose for him as king of Israel. Christ was delivered over to death to fulfill God's purpose for him as king of kings, lord of lords, savior of us all. And friends, you and I were delivered from death to life so that in Christ we can fulfill God's purpose for us to sing his praises to the nations. To cry, be exalted, O God. Let your glory be over all the earth. Whether you are in the darkness or in the dawn, you can do this. Through Christ who strengthens us. We see from this Psalm 57 that in the darkness what we do 
When the storm is raging around us, what we do is the same thing the psalmist did. We take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Right? Confident that he will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness to save us. The cross assures us of that. Because he has in Christ Jesus. And so we take shelter in him until the storm passes by. This is what God's people have done all through history. Athanasius, when he and other Christians were being persecuted by the emperor Julian, said, he's a little cloud. He will soon pass away. Right? As Christians are being murdered for their faith, Athanasius looks and says, he's a little cloud. He will soon pass away. And guess what? He did. Right? Emperor Julian is not still killing Christians. The storms of destruction have passed. And all who took refuge in the Savior were delivered. Weren't they? It's easy when the storms of destruction are raging around us to look and say, how on earth could this pass? I'm always reminded if you take a plane above the clouds, you see clear skies, don't you? The skies are clear above the heavens where God reigns. They are always clear. And God himself has sent out his steadfast love and his faithfulness to persevere his people through whatever storms of destruction come your way. So take refuge in him. If you're in the darkness, that's what we do. And then we exult in the Lord and cry, be exalted, O God. Let your glory be over all the earth. And friends, if you are not in the darkness, if you are experiencing the dawn of God's kindness to you, then we know what to do, don't we? We sing like the psalmist did, like David did. We sing and we exalt with the dawn. The cross assures us that God has sent out his steadfast love and faithfulness to us and that we are right with him because of Christ Jesus. And so we can sing with hearts unencumbered with guilt. We can sing with hearts freed and assured of God's saving mercy. And so we sing. The reality is, friends, that we have more confidence than David did to sing. And more confidence than David did to take refuge. Jesus' cross work gives us that confidence. For centuries, God's people looked to Psalm 57 for encouragement in the midst of various trials. And for direction when delivered. And for centuries, they obeyed the exhortation to take refuge in God and to sing to God. But they awaited something better and something better has come. And so you and I, looking back on that something better with assurance, have even more reason to turn to God in the midst of darkness and even more reason to exalt God when the dawn of the new creation comes. So friends, may we ever cry, Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending out your steadfast love and your faithfulness in Christ Jesus. 
and rescuing us from certain doom, certain destruction, rescuing us from death and bringing us to life in Christ Jesus. Thank you for raising Jesus from the dead and therefore giving us assurance that you will always fulfill your purposes and that your purposes are good, that your glory is spreading over all the earth and that that's cause for great joy for your people. Would you help us? Would you help us walk in that joy? Would you help us walk in the kind of trust that leads us to take refuge in you in the darkness? And would you help us walk in the kind of joy that fills our hearts with singing in the dawn? We pray that you do these things by your spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen.